Hello and welcome to the MIG Plus One podcast, where I sit down with industry leaders to dive into the future of connected work. I'm your host, Mick Kirsten, Chief Technology Officer of PlanView and the author of the best-selling book, Project to Product, How to Survive and Thrive in the Age of Digital Disruption with the Flow Framework. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with an esteemed industry leader who has made remarkable strides in the realm of digital transformation. Please join me in welcoming Palab Chatterjee, a visionary entrepreneur and technology expert. Palab is currently the chairman of Three Lines VC, a boutique VC firm specializing in investments in AI-focused companies in the US and India. And Palab's career has just been amazing and one that I've watched from the sidelines. He started as an SVP and CTO of Texas Instruments, then became the CEO of IT Technologies, which has been a long-time inspiration to me in terms of some of the core concepts behind flow and the shift from project to product. And most recently, he was the chairman and CEO of Symphony Retail AI, where he pioneered conversational and AI-based insights long before we were all talking about ChatGPT. So it was a pleasure to tap into Palab's vast knowledge and experience. We'll explore the project product movement and delve into strategies, frameworks, and mindsets that can help organizations thrive in the age of AI and digital disruption. So with that, let's get started. Palab, welcome to the podcast. It's just a, a thrill to have you on here. I, uh, you know, I know we've had some interesting discussions over the past year, but I, I do have to sort of tell you the story of how I first encountered the company that that you led, I too, which was uh, about a. 12, 13 years ago, one of our first venture capitalists that was you know, then, then funding Tastop said, Mick, there's this massive opportunity in software. You really need to understand what this company I'd never heard of called i2 is doing because what they did for supply chains, I think, is the biggest next opportunity for software. So that's actually how I encountered all of this. I'm just thrilled to have you on the podcast today and uh, for you to tell us some of your story because I think what, what you did in that entire industry and market and then how you've actually moved on you know made the shift now to most recently actually applying ai and conversational insights and interfaces and and predictive actions and analysis is kind of exactly where where all the agile devops and digital operating models are headed but but are not there yet right, right? Uh, for some of our past discussions. But before we jump into all of that, I would just love for you, you've had such an incredible career. I, I would just love for you to take us to maybe you know, some of the start of it. I, I do know that for myself, the, some of one, one of your earliest products that you, you helped bring to market, the, and we will have a lot of engineers who will be, get nostalgic once they hear this, but the TI-84 and TI-86 calculators. Does that tell us the story of how those happened? Because of course, of course, this this brings me back to the days of my first Mac Plus in 1986, and then those things coming up at the same time and getting to play with you know this amazing thing of of being able to graph. But if you could tell us your story of you know how you ended up as being the uh, CTO and SVP of of Texas Instruments and and how you brought this this lasting product to yeah, market. Yeah, so there is uh, two parts of this. Uh, you know, the TI career I actually had uh, uh, sort of a 25 year stint with uh, you know multiple. Uh, phases of it. The first phase of it was, was uh, you know, uh, an R&D, running a lab, then running the whole R&D. And it was all about publications and uh, conferences and, uh, you know, really making the basic, what I call the Bell Lab style research, you know, uh, get a PhD, get a technician, go do good things. Okay. Now we pivoted from there uh, earlier relatively early in my life where we said, look, um, it's really important for corporate R&D to 
actually create uh, opportunities for the company. And some of those opportunities I created while I was in R&D around the DSP area, very early in the um, research lab, uh, a very strong speech recognition group. So we created products like Speak and Spell, Speak and Math, Speak and Read, Julie Doll, which were way ahead of their time because they had uh, the vocabulary of about 60 words or so. They could uh, really converse with a two-year-old or three-year-old and teach them, you know, little bits of uh, how to read or how to, you know, solve little math problems or uh, as a companion for Julie Doll. So those, that was sort of the first rounds of things that were uh, very interesting. Uh, clearly, um, you know, TI had, uh, you know, been known for the early days of scientific calculators. Um, and we'd fallen a little bit behind and uh, Casio was beating us. So they had the graphing calculator. We were looking for an angle for our calculator to be differentiated. And we came across a couple of Ohio State professors who'd written this uh, book on uh, the program on how to teach um, algebra and pre-cal and Macintosh. And uh, they asked us if we would make actually calculator versions under $100 because Macintosh was out of reach of most high school students from a price point of view. So we did, and they wrote a textbook, and uh, you know they were able to take you know this idea and evangelize it by you know getting about two hundred fifty thousand dollars spent on teaching about ten thousand teachers how how to use calculators to make math exciting. That actually led them to vote for their that book and. We went almost to the year, within a year of that book being accepted in almost all the high, uh, school curriculums to 94% market share in the education market. And wow. it's one of the only consumer products that I know that was introduced in the 90s that still is uh, used. You can't go through high school without a couple of PI calculators. And it's held its price point. Uh, and the only thing they've done is uh, changed from you know, black and white screen to color screen. That's very interesting kind of situations in there. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. And and I guess it, it does have this bit of feel of, of history rhyming now with these new you know, chat GPT and, and AI technologies. With back then, obviously, calculators were very disruptive in education, but somehow it, it brought on a new generation of engineers. So that's... I, I'm I'm looking forward to getting back to the to how you think that this is now history is repeating itself now. So okay, and so then later at TI, I think this, you did a fascinating thing in terms of helping your customers. So this is now you know moving beyond just introducing this this incredible product to market, which again is is still in use today after all these years. This manufacturing excellence team that you led and and just. You know what sounds like over a billion dollars in productivity improvements that that team delivered across across almost a couple you know, a couple dozen factories. Can you just take us through that story? How did you get into this kind of manufacturing excellence, and then not only doing it for TI, but but for other, the market as a whole? So, Mick, you know the whole uh, manufacturing excellence uh, started with the DARPA contract that we actually did in our uh, lab to you know rethink semiconductor manufacturing as a single way for manufacturing with all software controls for process control, for flow control, for all of that aspect. And, um, you know, uh, 
my friend Tom Engibus became CEO of, of TI at that time and said, uh, if you think this is such a great thing, you know, you become head of the manufacturing excellence team and see what you can do for me. Um, so we um, went through, as you can imagine, uh, you know, head of R&D guy being told to become head of manufacturing excellence. You had all these you know, operations guys that were looking at me saying, well, what the hell do you know from Ivory Tower? Uh, well, we, you know, I went around, uh, you know, visited every factory and, you know, realized that the first order of things that we were actually needed to do was really what I call low technology fixes. You know, when you start a wafer through a wafer fab, you're supposed to have that wafer go through all the way, but it's a you know, fragile system and people were breaking it. The operators were breaking those wafers and the yield of you know, if you put in 100 wafers, some factories were getting 99 wafers out, some factories were breaking, getting 84, 85 wafers out. So we said, look, uh, if we can take the 15 wasted wafers and make them come out, that's almost like having a full factory worth of uh, output okay, uh, across 20 factories. So we created an, actually a cartoon video um, that uh, was 2x, characters, uh, Fab Man and wolf, Wafer Woman, trying to tell the operators the value of that one piece of wafer. And I remember the analogy that we made was, you know, this wafer is like buying a new BMW. At that time, BMW was a $25,000 car. So I'm dating myself. But he said, if you buy a $25,000 car, take it out of the showroom and crash it, how would you feel? This wafer actually brings TI $25,000 of revenue, and you're crashing it. So can you actually pay attention and you know, clear your mind and not crash it? Okay, that was the message. A very simple message, no science, nothing. That gave us about one and a half factory folds of output by showing that video in 12 languages around the world and getting the operators to understand what the loss to the company was when they were breaking what they looked like a little piece of wafer, right? So it was really, you know, a value understanding, okay? Then, of course, next time, next thing we went was more scientific, was uh, called the Harvey Finder from Ellie Goldratt's uh, Theory of Constraint book that allowed us to actually, you know, find uh, what our bottlenecks were and increase the flow through the factories and that gave us you know the next round of uh, improvements and so we were we put together series of those kinds of uh, improvements to get what i call one free factory a year for the next three years so that was the whole story of manufacturing excellence that's that's, that's fascinating and it's I think it's you know that kind of story is near and dear to to a lot of us listening who are you know come from technology and and somehow have become responsible for helping either our own organizations or you know in my case working with many organizations basically create excellence in their technology and, and digital operations and uh, yeah actually the, the it's interesting that you mentioned the cartoon because I, I recently reviewed BMW Group still uses cartoons for delivering excellence and training people in their in their manufacture in, in their yeah. plants. So this, and and I think you, you hit on a key thing is this uh, the understanding of value and understanding of waste, right? You identified this this understanding of waste, and it was more of a people yeah. thing, people not seeing it, 
And I think where we are with a lot of technology value streams today is there isn't this understanding of waste and how much capacity can be unlocked. Yep. You know, in this case, it was a whole factory's worth. That's incredible. But how much capacity can unlock in every organization by by understanding that waste and and getting rid of, rid of that waste? And then, so I think I, I guess, do you see that as where it's initially first uh, making sure people understand value and waste in the, the two sides of that coin, and then, of course, exactly what what I know what so many of us are doing is trying to apply theory of constraints and improvements in flow and and bottlenecks to then. Improving the value streams, but I do actually see that a lot of these digital transformations fall flat because there isn't a business or leadership or or engineer understanding of this kind of systemic way. Yeah, that's very so. true, and I think people really have a tough time understanding waste. And one of the key things I found was to sort of put a dollar value to every activity that is wasted. Right? It doesn't look like much when you don't understand what the impact is. Uh, but if you can actually relate, you know, wasted time or wasted energy or wasted, uh, you know, uh, recycling of uh, work to what it means in terms of, you know, a, a dollar value, most people get that much easier when they say, oh, my God, I just wasted $200,000. Okay? That's a very different thing right. from well, what's the big deal? It was just, you know. Uh, we just re- you know reworked it, okay? and rework cycles in some of these areas are you know commonly written off as business as usual. But you know the root cause of rework is something uh, was not done right, one way or the other. Okay, whether it's upstream, downstream, or it's at the same point, and you know it causes. No loss in time, loss in productivity, loss in all kinds of things. And if you translate that into dollars, people actually get it. Saying, "Hey, you know, I just you know need to be more careful about making mistakes like that." Yeah, I think that's that's such good guidance for our community, right? Because I, I think it's the it's not it's a, it can be harder to see with intangibles. I, I would have thought that wafers to me look really really expensive. <laughs> So just the fact that you had to translate the value of a, a lost wafer to the value of a of a twenty five thousand dollar BMW is interesting, but it's it's even you know obviously it's in a in a manufacturer if it's a uh, cars in the rework area on the manufacturing line that that's obvious what the value is, but I guess a wafer is a bit more yeah. abstract. And then of course all the waste that we see in some by the way in in, in value streams we just did the state of the industry report mm-hmm. where we summarized three six hundred value streams we're seeing defect and rework taking. 20, 30, 40, 50% of the capacity, right? So quantifying what that is in terms of... So your guidance is quantify that in terms of dollars because fundamentally people at multiple levels of the organization can, can understand Yes, that. I think as long as... As soon as you can quantify it, even if it's not exact, if it's actually... You know, what people relate to is, you know, if you say you need to you know, value this and this is wasted, as long as you can do a, some amount of quantification, reasonable quantification into dollars, that sinks into people's minds a lot better than any other abstract KPI. Yeah, I think, and I, I do see more success, and maybe you know, these things do sound related, in transformations where the finance team is involved in actually helping make the economic case and actually yes. quantify both value and waste than when it's not, right? So yeah. and then of course then that ends up with a lot more organizational and senior support for a transformation because all of a sudden 
uh, it's clear how much capacity capacity can be unlocked or how much more velocity can be can be driven. So, okay. So then, then how how did you go from this to I two? Can you tell us the that story? Yeah. So the you know the I two transition was actually a you know interesting transition in the sense that you know I actually had, you know ended up in between after my manufacturing excellence. I ran this. Um, uh, you know, calculator and uh, uh, notebook business. Uh, we sold a whole bunch of businesses, and to become a semiconductor company is a part of our you know increasing share value. And at the end of that, uh, my CEO basically said, "You really need to help me out because I have an SAP program, and my CIO sold it to me, and it's going nowhere." So in between, before I too, I ended up as a CIO of TI uh, with a massive SAP program when we were burning a million dollars a day of consulting. Wow! It was you know going in you know going in uh, delays and lots of different problems. Uh, and at, you know we were doing putting in an SAP ERP system and an I two uh, supply chain system, and you know we had to really put a lot of energy into getting that project to work. Um, it did work. Towards the end of that, uh, you know, I too, the founders of I2 actually uh, worked for me in the research lab. So uh, that was a big connection. Okay, Sanjeev Sidhu was uh, you know, a researcher in the research lab that I was running overall um, in TI. So when we had this program go across uh, go, uh, you know, well, uh, he approached me and said, look, oh, we're getting to be a billion-dollar company and we are all uh, sort of young entrepreneurs who have built this company, but we need some serious management. So that's how I ended up in I2. And that was sort of the you know, next journey of actually you know, getting supply chain uh, improvements in multiple verticals. And you know, I2 had... Almost every vertical you can think of, uh, we had uh, solutions, we had customers. And so I got to work with retail, manufacturing, automotive, steel, process industries, you know, a lot of different people, pharmaceuticals, and uh, you know, get to understand all these different kinds of supply chains. And you know, we applied our optimization and our theory of constraint-based um, improvements. And uh, here again, one of the key things I, I too did was uh, we measured uh, the impact of our work in terms of value delivered. And every customer event that we had, Chairman uh, Sanjeev would get up and announce the cumulative amount of value we delivered to our customers. And we were sitting in, you know, billions of dollars of actual value delivered by the time we had four or five hundred customers and it was a very systematic process with a calculation done by you know uh, pwc and it was you know it was an it was really serious so that actually was a big deal in terms of people understanding not only the fact that we were actually able to deliver it that we were able to actually show customers and actually get the real uh, value statements from customers Okay, so this is a fascinating common theme here because I think, again, where so many CTOs, leaders of digital transformation, CIOs struggle right now, 
uh, as well as all the vendors and and GSIs and the like, is is actually in terms of quantifying that yep. that improvement. So, yep. and to the point where you know the fact that you had one of the big for PwC, one of the big for helping or getting behind this, right? This is, I think, yeah. where where we need to get to as an industry in terms of that kind of rigor of yeah. measuring value and improvement. So, how can you? How did you do it? How were you actually quantifying it? How, like, can you just tell us, take us through the early steps of that journey? Yeah, so effectively, you know, we had a front end and a back end on this. Uh, the front end, we actually had what we called a strategic opportunity assessment group, which was. You know, some ex-McKenzie uh, Booz Bain kind of people who uh, would generally people who didn't make partner got a hold of a bunch of them. Uh, we went into the customer saying, you know, if you brought in McKenzie to do an analysis of how what your supply chain inefficiency is, uh, you'd probably pay two or $3 million. Let us bring in some ex-McKenzie people. We'll do it for you for 250 k We at least used that to establish what the opportunity was in terms of either supply chain turns or excess inventory or, you know, uh, delivery delays, uh, you know, and we recorded what the opportunity was. And after they implemented the program, we went back again, and that's what PwC did was to say, okay, show me the numbers before and after, and that's what we used to create the the value delivered statement. And so having the, you know, uh, analysis up front as to where the opportunity was allowed us to go back and just, you know, look at the before and after. And that's how we actually established uh, the value delivered. Amazing. That sounds simple, but but still still amazing that you, you were quantifying this and, and that we're not as an industry today. Yeah, so. and we were quantifying this. And in many ways, I too had some really you know, strategic foresight, not only in the, you know, the products and the way they're doing it, but, uh, you know, these kinds of things, of course, you know, uh, we couldn't do 100% of customers because some of the customers didn't want to give us the information. But what PwC did was take reasonable samples in every vertical so that they actually helped us uh, know, look at the whole cohort and say, okay, we can extrapolate to this. So uh, in you know, all fairness, we could only get about 25 to 30% of customers to actually let us do the actual analysis with PwC. Uh, and, you know, we basically could look alike programs to get it to the whole thing. But even then, you know, even getting 25% of these guys with uh, a third-party auditor Looking at this is uh, it was quite a you know quite a bold statement at that time because we didn't know if the PwC guys would come and say you know bullshit you didn't do anything you know yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's amazingly bold and again I think something we need to see see more of in the yeah. in organizations making the shift to digital so. So then, can you tell us a bit about how you did it? So basically, about I2's products and, and and solutions. Just you know, some of the highlights of the things that you know you you saw bringing to market, and some of the most the biggest surprises of what worked, what didn't. Well, the you know fundamental thesis of I2 supply chain software was the you know the ability to do massive linear programming optimization of uh, how to take all of the constraints and all of the flows in first in the factory then across the entire 
supply chain and essentially create a plan that optimized the delivery based on order flows. So it considered every aspect of it. It's not just a you know material constraint. It's you know uh, it's uh, factory constraints, material constraints, and a supply chain multi-layer, multi-tier supply chain constraints. And so uh, that was a mathematical, uh, you know, solution that was, you know, very advanced, okay? And that was the underlying, you know, uh, capability. With that, we, you know, that was a, that was sort of the uh, supply side capability. Then we also had a demand forecasting, uh, you know, capability so that we could have, really you know improve demand forecast accuracy and then we had the third which is the matching of the supply and demand to uh, to really make the supply chain work so that was in in a sense the three pieces that worked actually quite well in the brick and mortar world but you know we ventured what didn't work was we ventured into the dot-com world in the 99 2000 time frame and if you remember, there was so this big craze about B2B exchanges at that time. And uh, we created a marketplace product. Before the marketplace product could actually take hold, the dot-com crash happened. And we lost about 450 dot-com customers within four or five months. They all went bankrupt. Yeah. And many of them owed us money. So uh, that was sort of the negative side of this. But overall, I think the base product was good and i too you know the two founders were very forward looking and they um, realized that they couldn't solve all the problems themselves so we had 13 acquisitions uh, mostly technology related acquisitions to fill in different parts of the portfolio wow and and so you in terms of the the journey and because obviously you know there was a lot you did on getting visibility of the constraints Yep. The was it? I assume it was later that you realized that that visibly had to become actionable and this matching of supply and demand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we actually had this, you know, concept of you know, we borrowed it from uh, Total Quality, this PDCA, Plan Do Check Act. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so visibility says something is not happening unless you close the loop and they see what are you going to do different. Okay. You know, you, you still don't get it, right? So one of the things that I had put in place is not only do we do a plan, we make the plan happen. Yeah. Okay. And so that included really, you know, fast replanning actions as a part of the product and the ability to actually, you know, look at what was actually really happening from a visibility point of view and make timely early decisions on what to change in the plan and what actions to take so that you did get to the outcome you wanted. Yeah. Okay. And that part of it came as the second part of what we did. The first part was having the underlying engines. But on top of that, when we put in the PDCA uh, cycle, uh, it really drove a lot more of the value uh, addition. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I, I say we're not there as, as an industry. Of course, we see pockets of this, right? On the on this podcast, Adrian Cockcroft, who is an exec at AWS, he did the cloud architecture at Netflix. He said the whole point of cloud is if you apply the theory of constraints to your OODA loop, which you know, observe oriented side act loop, which is like your PDCA loop, cloud removes a, a key constraint. It allows you to ship that much faster, accelerates decision making and replanning. So 
this this is happening out there, but it is still amazing to me as, as how few companies have actually been able to to do this for their software for the, for their digital assets. So now, of course, Razat, PlanView CEO, you know he's he's been setting this vision for us. He was on this podcast earlier as well. I know. I mean, he he learned from me. <laughs> I know exactly. He was uh, he was a very uh, you know up and coming product manager, and I you know I think I pushed him up in the career and great. Uh, Great uh, career from there, but uh, uh, we all had this experience of learning how to go from creating a plan to making a plan happen, which is a big, big difference. Okay, uh, static plans when they don't happen, people say, "Okay, what the hell?" You know, you know, why did it not happen? But we actually put in the tools to make it happen. That's the PDCA cycle. Yeah, and now I know he keeps telling me that make flow metrics and visibility are great, but it needs to be actionable. So. <laughs> Unless you, you know, you're checking what you're doing, but if you don't have an action, you know, it's an open loop. Uh, you can say that it's not happening, but, you know, if you don't say what are you going to do about it. And one of the other questions we actually made a very important thing is, when did you know? Okay. In a, most organizations, even in visibility, okay, the action needs to take place as early as you know something is going wrong. Okay. And normally, the uh, tendency of an organization is to suppress bad news or suppress, you know, negative things till it becomes a you know, real problem, and then you're into firefighting mode. Okay? So one of our questions in the visibility was: Can you actually give us early indications? of what could happen, which is what these have led to these prescriptive and predictive models saying, yeah, I see this, and this is not actually, is it is tending towards a pattern, but I'm not quite sure yet. But if you were able to have that be a bit of a predictive answer rather than a, you know, retrospective answers or a, you know, concurrent answer, then your opportunity to act on it is much better. So that's uh, the you know that's the thing that you know we started propagating is we started calling it you know when did you first know and what, then what did you do about it? Uh, that was sort of the way we set up the PDCA. Earlier you know, the better off you are. And you know in today's world uh, you know of AI. That's turning into more of a predictive and prescriptive forecasting uh, from pattern recognition and from you know understanding you know uh, how to uh, roll that forward. Yeah, and so Palaba, just to give you so this is some of the challenges I'm seeing is that in terms of when there was a certain level of maturity in these organizations, so that they they knew when you showed them this information, and I think. When they first knew and acting earlier and earlier on that information, we're actually seeing these this really big mismatches between what business leaders understand and what's actually happening within the technology organization. So I'll take one of your examples, right? You went matching supply and demand. The state of the industry report that on pro- the project to product shift that we just released, what we found is that at the business level, and you know, think just global five hundred traditional. This, these are the, this is where most of the data came from. Global five hundred organizations and leaders of those organizations, as well as the technology leaders and teams that we got data from, including data right from their system tools, in addition to the survey data. What we saw is that this sounds 
a little bit crazy, but this is the reality we all, a lot of us deal with day to day. A 10x mismatch between capacity and and the demand for that capacity. So business leaders think there's 10 more capa- 10 times more capacity to deliver on software and digital initiatives than there actually is in the organizations. Now, of course, what we see is the reason there's a lot less capacity than they think is because of all the waste and all of the inefficiencies that are actually in that system. But there isn't they're not measuring capacity in a disciplined way. Yeah, I think the 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 issue really is the Available capacity, you know, is always unclear to people. Okay, and I've run plenty of software organizations in here, and um, uh, yeah, waste. Uh, you know, rework cycles are very common in the software business. You know, you basically you know don't get it right from all the way from getting the requirements right to getting the code right to getting you know the deployment right, and that actually you know gives you a certain amount of uh, wasted capacity in the rework part of it okay then uh, you have these uh, tensions about whether you meet the time or you meet the quality and in many cases the quality organization doesn't have the teeth to actually stop the line and then it goes to your customer yep. Then you had a bigger waste cycle because you're now uh, spending a lot of your capacity fixing tech debt and customer issues that should have never gone there. So, so from a point of view of somebody in the top, you know, I'm dealing with an organization that has 750 developers, okay, and their ability to deliver anything on time is extremely poor. You know, and so when I talk to the CEO, it says, "How can this be? You know, I have 700 people, okay? and you know, all of these are there. And the effective capacity, when you take out the, you know, what is actually happening in these, you know, rework cycles and the waste cycles and the inaccuracy and actually handing over from product management to development, you really are left with very little capacity. That is, you know." really officially delivering and that's the mismatch i think is yes, where exactly now the issue is you know nobody actually quantifies each of those sufficiently to get people to act on it okay uh, and then you know you you have this you know business guy saying hey i gave you you know so many hundred people yep. what do you mean Okay, and the guy on the street, you know, down the trenches says, "But I only have three people available to do this." Okay, so uh, in the middle of this, you have to be able to see where those things are, and what is it that you actually do from a people process tools point of view to increase the effectiveness or efficiency and reduce the waste. Okay. And you know that's why I, I'm like a broken doll, a broken um, record here. A business guy is to understand that they're wasting. You know, if you're spending you know two hundred million dollars in R and D, and you tell them you're wasting one hundred twenty million of that, one hundred thirty million of that, it's a different message than you know I need more people. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so then you can actually say, okay, here's what the waste is about, and here's what we need to do to get this fixed. Okay. Uh, that's the action part of it. Yeah, exactly. And and I think again, the organizations that do qualify this, that understand, you know, their 
their flow. They can measure their flow and they can understand as, as they uh, remove waste that flow increase and capacity increased by, you know, by the removed waste, but, you know, they removed X, capacity increased by Y. They're doing this, right? And they're, they're doing, they're, they've made that improvement cycle, that improvement of daily work, a core part of how they plan. And then we see all these dysfunctions where, you know, only business work is being prioritized. So all the tech debt, all the quality, all the rework, really big thing, by the way, in this finding is all the dependencies. So when, when there isn't an architecture, just as you have with a plant or a manufacturing line that supports fast flow, you know, you could deploy microservices and, and make such a web of dependencies. Everything's constantly waiting because you're constantly waiting on another team on another API on access to more data. So again, I think, but the guidance you're giving though is, is to make that waste visible and quantifiable in dollars. Yeah, I think that is the key thing is that otherwise these KPIs don't sink in. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You can put in a lot of these other operational KPIs, they don't sink in. And, and so you have this mismatch uh, continuing. So, and, and most of the CTOs don't talk the dollar language, so they don't get understood. Okay by the business business side of the house. And that's why I think the common language has to be quantifiable in dollars. And once you quantify in dollars and you say, look, uh, I'm sorry, but, uh, you know, I mean, if we don't, you know, if we don't fix this, um, you know, you know, we are going to continue to waste, uh, you know, $200 million a year. Yeah. Okay. That's a different message than anything else. And, you know, and I think also, um, uh, there is a uh, there is a lack of belief that if you did allow the CTO or you know the person in charge the opportunity to improve those processes that they would actually get it done. Yes. Uh, that's a, that is that's also a, a lack of credibility there, right? Yep. Because they are the ones who actually evolved into it over time, right? So. Um, I think you know what I see is that when you when that becomes evident, okay, in an organization that is you know trying to deliver internal internally deliver software, uh, one of two things happen. You know, one is you go outsource it to somebody um, like a Tata or a, you know uh, Infosys or a you know an Accenture and say, okay, you guys do it because we don't believe our internal guys know how to do this. So instead of saying, okay, the internal guys can fix this problem, you give it to somebody else. It's not clear that somebody else will actually fix it or not fix it, but that's one business decision I've seen being made. The other business decision I've seen being made in these kinds of situations is, well, I might as well use package software because, you know, I mean, I'm going to get you know, generally available, fully vetted out software. And I'm not going to have to, you know, deal with uh, quality problems and delay problems and things like that. The net of all of this is, you know, the answer is somewhere in the middle. But when those complications come in, then the CTO is also in a, in a compromised situation as to what they are actually really wanting to, you know, can get done versus, you know, okay, now do I manage a third party guy? Now do I, you know, turn into an implementer guy, you know, uh, uh, and, you know, turn over and get all my software uh, from somebody else, okay? So the, the solution space is not clean, is what I'm saying, okay? Even if you know the visibility, the different 
constituents in the business have different ideas of how to solve that problem. The first is to get to them, get them to understand the problem. Okay. Then it is, do I give the CTO the ability to go take some time and sharpen his axe and fix it? Or do I have no credibility? Of, no, this organization has no credibility, so I have to do one of the other two. And that generally, if you complicate the situation, it generally doesn't solve the problem. It generally makes it slower. Yeah, Palab, in terms of these various options, I think, you know, tell me if you agree or disagree, but to tell a manufacturing CEO that, or, or if a manufacturing CEO were to say, okay, we're going to outsource our supply chain management problem so I don't have to think about it, there'd be something wrong there, right? That's core to a manufacturer. So how are, how are software enterprises wanting to outsource this? It's not outsource the supply chain manufacturing problem. It is, do I create internal supply chain software to give it to my manufacturing guy done by the IT department or do I bring right. it in IT? Yeah. Okay. And the decisions out there is if I'm not getting it done internally, okay, do I arm my supply chain VP with the tools that they yes. can do it? Absolutely. And, and that's the decision we're talking about, not outsource the whole supply chain. Yeah. You know, okay. So similarly, um, you know, in many organizations where, you know, there's been homegrown software over a long time and all the tech debt and everything is there, there is a you know, belief that, you know, maybe we get somebody else to take my mess and fix it. And now that guy is only bringing, you know, development processes and bodies, right? So instead of saying, I'm going to go another, get another tool, I'm saying, I'm going to actually have somebody else, some other people who know how to fix this process, come and fix my mess. Mm -hmm. Okay. And there's a whole industry has gone around, uh, has been uh, uh, developed, you know, primarily in low cost countries like India, where the value proposition is your mess for less. Okay. I, I take care of your mess and I'll do it for less cost. Right. So, the industry is living with these pieces, and that's why streamlining and getting the action part of this, you know, cleaned out is so important. But I see very few organizations actually getting there, okay? Uh, because you know, and there'll be different attempts, right? You know, you know, I saw the you know Carnegie Mellon. Uh, CM, uh, CMMI levels one, two, three, four, five, you know, CMI level five guy. So you must be doing great quality yeah. stuff. Uh, there is ISO 2000 uh, certification. There's a whole bunch of those things have been tried. But underlying this is not too many people have a systematic way of actually, you know, addressing this problem with a combination of process and tools. Yeah. Yeah, no, that I think that's exactly the the crux here. So now, in terms of how we solve that, because of course, you know, so much of I know my attention, other other leaders and thought leaders in this in this industry is going to this problem. I'm gonna just jump ahead here because somehow you made this leap, but you know, back in you know six years ago, seven years ago, that somehow AI would be part of the solution, right? And I think when when it's now much more obvious as of the fall anyway that. 
that's Chat GPT and and generative train transformers and such are, are are actually going to change the game in in different ways, right? I, I do think this is you know the, the the next big technological revolution after the age of software, and we're now you know programming all of a sudden is going to be between two and a hundred times more productive over the coming years right. and decades. So right. such fundamental dynamics will change. But how did you go from where you were with I two to thinking that? AI is part of the solution, at least in, you know, in this, it, with with Symphony Retail AI is, is is key to the solution domain. So one of the things that actually is interesting for me is um, even back in the ninety and ninety one and TI. Okay, I had an AI program, and you know the definition of AI at that time was uh, very you know very nascent compared to where it is today, but the ideas were not. Mm, very different is that that the underlying technology support was much less less okay so you know the flavor of the day at that time was expert systems mm-hmm. okay so and and you know MIT came up with a new language for expert systems called Lisp okay? yep. uh, and uh, TI created the Lisp machine and that was sort of the trial there okay. You know, clearly, you know, people were, and even at that time, I had a group doing neural network and you know, uh, early research in these areas. Okay, so my thinking is that it, the concepts in AI have been there for a long time. Okay, the compute power and the compute cost hasn't caught up with it for till you know the last few years where. Uh, if you look at the compute power that's inherent in a smartphone today, even the smartphone of 2010 versus smartphone of today, you know the compute power is amazing, right? So that has actually unleashed things that can be done. Now, along with that, if you look at the evolution of uh, something like speech recognition, okay. As I said, we did one of the earliest ones with Julie Dahl and Speak and Spell, where it was, you know, to get to a speaker independent recognition was a massive job, right? And uh, we were dealing with 16 kilobit memories as all we could have at that time, right? Now, if you look at uh, the next phase of what happened with the advent of Siri and Alexa and uh, the you know, speech recognition has taken huge jumps on that. Okay? In on top, you know, and then you look at the ability to actually create these, you know, deep learning models okay, that are now existing. Okay, uh, that has taken a lot of jump. So uh, we looked at this problem uh, from a, you know, in the 2016, 2017 timeframe when we were sort of planning something breakthrough in the retail and we came up with cindy and our whole thing was that we wanted to have the same capability inside a retail organization in terms of answering questions and showing projection predictions that a consumer was starting to get used to with cd and alexa and so uh you know that's how we framed the problem and I had a really you know, outstanding team of product managers and product user experience guys. And we were able to go from a chalk session on a conversational AI solution 
for retail uh, category managers to a demonstration product in about four months. And the reason we were able to do that is we actually said we will build only things we need to build. So we used Google Dialog Flow to understand uh, the the for speech natural language processing. Uh, we used a lot of the um, Amazon Voice uh, uh, NLG stuff, and what we did was we actually said we want to be able to figure out how to organize retail data in a way that you can actually have predictive programs and answer questions which category managers were taking, you know, weeks to answer, okay? And, and so the whole contribution was just to combination of how to get the right data parsed and how to get uh, the AI algorithms that will actually, you know, find the outliers and find the patterns. Okay? And we were able to do that, in, you know, the first round and, uh, very quickly. So that and now, you know, clearly with ChatGPT, uh, the generative AI stuff is just going crazy. I predict that, you know, every government is going to get in the act and try to regulate it and get it, you know, you know slow it down uh, because now it's there's so much potential of what it can do. It makes the politicians crazy that they can't control it. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, AI is probably headed more for how can you control it? Like, you know, same thing happened with the crypto stuff. And, you know, uh, but from a technology point of view, it's exactly what, you know, what uh, the path of AI is. And, it, you know, it, it is going to be able to deliver. And so what were some of your key learnings here? Because I think with, with Cindy's especially, so obviously the, the data being properly structured and modeled and is key i think that's what, what other what other surprises did you find given how early yes you got so what, what we saw was that you know creating a chatbot and for a, using getting data from a web page okay uh the reason internet became so ubiquitous is you know html and you know just the sort of the organization of a web page was you know very repeatable right if you look at enterprise databases, okay, uh, there is, you know, relational database definitions, schemas, and so on are all over the place, right? So organizing the data to be able to get the right kind of AI models to work on it, we couldn't assume that we had an underlying data set that was, you know, the same from customer to customer. So we had to create a metadata layer, and we had to create, you know, a set of uh, what I call diction, not just dictionaries. We had to create what I call a thesaurus, okay? Because different people call different things the same, you know, yeah. different things. So that whole metadata intelligence was net needed to operate on a enterprise relational database or enterprise database that wasn't needed if you're just dealing with web pages. Um, and that helped us actually, you know create that layer that we could actually um, operate on and therefore fetch the deep data pieces on demand and able to get those answers in, you know, fractions of a second. Otherwise, you wouldn't get it. 
Yeah, and I think you know now all of a sudden a bunch of things will become a whole lot easier with large and unstructured yep. data sets with yep. with these large language models and such. So yeah, Paula, as as we wrap up right now, we're we're almost at the top of our time. What? Oh no, I'm just wondering. You know, you you've seen what guidance do you have for us in terms of how to think about these massive changes, applying some of again what was done and on the supply chain side of things to software. What 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 do you think are the key next things for leaders to focus on. I know you told me you were reminding me early on is like you know just the the relevance of of AI. Um, it is really neat to trace it back to speak and spell. That was <laughs> a good yeah. and good and fun rem- reminder. But how do you you know what 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 guidance do you have for us? Well, uh, you know, for you guys at Plan View, you have some you know uh, really uh, good stuff happening. I guess uh, I think recently you had a you know great. Uh, Gardner Magic Quadrant that talked about your positioning there. Yeah, that, that was great to see, but you can you can stretch this to the whole industry because I think that what's fascinating yeah. is how how much of the movement in the industries that you've led. So the whole software industry is the scope of the right. question. <laughs> so overall, I think you know my my view is that one of the key things to learn is that what you are used to thinking is the norm of delivering a solution. Okay. If you stay within the you know incremental thinking, okay, you never break out of it. So uh, I would recommend that don't do portfolio planning. Don't do things that are you know based on what you actually collecting what you have and collecting how you have done it. Okay, uh, if you do it the other way, where you say, look, and I'll take two other vectors coming in from there. You know, one vector is what else is happening outside that you're not bringing in? For Cindy, we said things are happening in the consumer world that we don't, you know, can't see happening here. So bringing that in is very, very critical to re, you know, reimagine what you're, you know, how you deliver. And the second thing is, you know, I'm big believer in customer centricity and really understanding where the pain level is at eight or nine for a solution, okay? And let me explain that. You know, everybody says they're solving a customer pain, right? Uh, and right now with the, you know, the VC group I'm in, uh, one of the things we do routinely is go ask the customer, okay, for this solution, uh, what would you consider the pain level to be, okay? And on a regular pain scale, think if you're in a pain doctor, it says, how much pain is there? If the answer is three, four, or five, okay, that's a vitamin solution. And it's something that is, you know, going to be hard to, uh, to really get adoption, get sales, get revenue. If it's a seven, eight, or nine, it's a painkiller solution. The painkiller solution needs to actually show the answer and show that you're actually making that big dollar difference that we're talking about. Okay? So if you take those two things, build painkillers that you're actually able to demonstrate the value of, which is the kind of thing we learned at I2, and apply things that you don't have today as additional tools in your toolkit rather than try to build on top of what only what you have, okay? The incremental path is always going to be there. 
But if you don't do those two things, you actually end up either stagnating or falling behind the eight ball because somebody else will. That that sounds like great advice for all of us at PlanView and 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 for the rest of the people in the industry trying to trying to help organizations navigate this now even bigger disruption than than we were thinking you know just just six months ago. So right. that that that's coming with the journey of AI. So, Palab, thank you so so much. This is the, I don't know if you have any last words to close on, but that was that is just some I think some incredible advice and guidance that that you've provided us. So, thank you so much for joining, and I hope you continue sharing your learnings. Yeah, it was uh, it was a you know, great opportunity. Be you know happy to continue to help in any way I can. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us on Mic Plus One today. To stay up to date on the future of connected work, follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, or using the hashtags Mic Plus One or Project to Product. If you'd like to dive deeper, check out the Project to Product book. And remember that all authors and minorities in technology. Thanks, and until next time.